0: Great privilege to think on and to sing about and to express with the ways that you've given to express your glory. Father, your glory is beyond anything we have ever seen or experienced. In fact, your word makes it clear that we can't handle it in the current state that we're in. But God, I thank you for the reality that for those that are Your children, You are molding us and shaping us and sanctifying us more into the image of Your Son, Jesus, so that one day we will be able to behold Your glory in the way that You have designed us to. And what will be the centerpiece of that glory for us forever will be the gracious act that You accomplish through Jesus in order for us to be able to stand and sing in Your presence unhindered and to live with the true ability to glorify You with our thought and in everything that we do. We long for that day, Lord. It's not today. And so every time I sing about Your glory, I, I, I can't help but think it's it's not today. I want to be able to do this. I'll, I want to be fully surrendered and I like to sing that, and think that, and read about that, and even preach about that. But it's a, it's a battle. It's a fight. So much faith required. And so, Lord, we long for the day where faith is no more. And so, God, I thank you for Romans chapter eight. Um, and I admit the truths that I'll be handling this morning go far beyond. 30 to 40 minutes. And so, God, I pray that by your grace and through the power of your spirit, that you would help us to be precise, help everything that's spoken to be true, and God, that you would speak to your people and we would be encouraged by the truths that we've sang about because they're found in your word. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. And I can actually say this morning, it's good to see some of you. And here's what I mean. We, in an attempt to, well, all right. So it's twofold. Um, you know, since things started to reopen, we knew that that we had the ability to meet again. But how to do that and what that looks like, it uh, actually is going to look like, is something that we're actually still working through. And uh, we made some progress this morning in our elder meeting. So just be encouraged by that. And I do want to say thank you for all of you that took time to fill out the survey. The information that we got was. Was, was so crucial and, and, and so helpful. So thank you for taking time to do that. And I also want to let you know that there will be, I, I think, I think that there will be another survey that we send out um, with, with some more specific information so that, again, you guys can um, continue to be a part of, of us moving forward. And, and so thank you for that. And I do want to say this. I don't think I've said this yet, but, but thank you for your generosity. Uh, the elder team doesn't know who gives what or anything like that. We just know what's given. And, and and friends, I know I have to I wish I could just say this to our people and nobody else was hearing it, but here we are, you know, we're virtual. But your generosity um, has been incredible through this difficult time. And so um, ministry needs will continue to increase. And, and the reality is, is that ministry costs, um, but, but you guys have remain steadfast and faithful in, in your giving and I pray that that continues and I hope that you're seeing some fruit from that um, in ways that we can communicate the ways that the Lord um, is, is working in different parts of the world I, I have to be vague just for safety and, and security purposes but um, we have had some opportunities and have some opportunities to continue to be a part of things that are going on all over the world um, even things that are directly, directly related to this pandemic and so thank you for your generosity in that as well, and so said all that to say. We have maybe about eight or ten um, from uh, Dolan and Vicky Davis's community group that are actually live here with us this morning. So we have a live studio audience. Yeah. So Theory. Theory. the right group, which right, it's almost rotten. <laughs> no, no, it means prime. I'm looking at faces that are in their prime, um, but. But but they um, reached out and desired to meet this morning and wanted to meet for this gathering and so we thought it would be a good opportunity for us to try to get a feel for that and kind of see what it would be like. Um, I and I know Joseph and Brandon and that way. We're thrilled to see some more faces. And so welcome um, this morning, right group, and, and and welcome to all of you who are tuning in virtually. Continuing our study called "Hope in Hard Times" and. Uh, you know, we said at the onset that this wasn't a, an attempt to like fearmonger or to try to, uh, you know, make the situation that we're in worse than it is. Um, but the reality is, is for some people this time has been incredibly difficult. But another reality is um, that difficult times are coming, and so whether this pandemic and COVID-19 has been a more, of, uh, I mean, you see more of the silver lining in your life, and, and God used it to kind of reorient your thinking and regroup you as a family. And, and there's certainly a lot of positive that have come from that. Um, for a lot of people, it's been absolutely devastating to their physical well-being and also to their spiritual well-being, to their emotional well-being, um, and, and to their uh, financial well-being as well. But the reality is, and, and this, like this thought hit me this morning in our elders meeting as we were praying for you guys and praying for many of you as we talked about many, many struggles and many difficulties that many families that we're in contact with are going through, friends, we didn't even talk about COVID-19. And so this is more than just us trying to speak hope into um, a a difficult time during a pandemic. Um, This is um, us in an attempt to open the Bible and to see what the Bible specifically says in regards to suffering. And, And I'm not saying this whole life is hard. For some people, it is. For some people, they might experience more good in this life than they do bad. But the reality is, is that we live in a world that's broken and in a world where there is futility. We live in a world where there, um, there are things such as tragedy, and there's cancer, and there are diseases, and there are all of those things. And that's the reality of the world we live in. And so for the, uh, for the most part, the vast majority of people that live long enough on this planet will walk through some sort of situation or scenario that they're challenged more than they ever have been. And so it's vitally important for us to have a good theology of suffering and a good biblical understanding of what it means to suffer and why we experience the suffering that we do in this life. So for some of you, you may go, Hey, I'm not suffering. I'm really kind of tired of hearing about suffering. Can we talk about something a little bit more upbeat? Hey, my encouragement to you would be to hide these words in your heart. Store the Word of God in your heart because there will come a day. There will come a day. And I don't know when, but there will come a day when these truths will be all you have to hold on to. But for some of you, today is that day. For some of you, it's dark. For some of you, it's gloomy. For some of you, you're just grasping wherever you can grasp for some sort of hope and light and encouragement. And praise be to God that His Word brings just that. So in Romans 8, Brandon said I was going to cover the whole chapter, and we would be here till well beyond 3 o'clock this afternoon if I did that. Huh. would put the whole chapter out there so that you would spend time in this chapter. This, this is a glorious chapter of the Bible, and, I, and I'm not one to typically like, seem like I'm pitting God's Word in one section against another section, but if, if I was on an island and I could only have one chapter of the entire Bible, First thing I would do is try to memorize as much as I could before that day. But the one that I would want to take with me is Romans chapter 8. Because it speaks of so much gospel victory and truth. It speaks to every situation. It speaks to every context. It speaks to how we are to live. It speaks to how we are to think. It speaks to how we are to hope. And, and because of how it communicates into all of those things, it certainly brings us great, great hope. And so again today maybe maybe today um, you're not suffering but maybe today you are and if you're not hide this in your heart but if you are and you know that you're a child of God and you know that you're adopted into the household of the family God and you know that you're destined for glory and you know those things those things are there and you know they're true but today for some of you all you can see is the battle and you can just picture yourself on a battlefield it's just smoke filled and you hear the shots going by and the bullets whizzing by your ears and there's more fear and doubt and uncertainty than anything. Some of you are just conscious right now of the warfare and the difficulty of this life and the setbacks and the toll and the turmoil. I want you to know that Paul's talking to you. He's speaking directly to you this morning. And so we're going to begin in verse 17, the middle part of verse 17. And Lord willing, we're going to journey through verse 25. 17. Middle part of 17 through verse 25, and just going to let you know up front, I'm not going to be able to cover everything you're going to want to know about this, and so continue to spend time yourself in God's Word, but let's start with verse 17, and I'll start with 16, what you'll see is 17 and 18, 16 says, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and here's what we'll pick up. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Now watch this. Here's where I want us to really pick up in our thinking. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And so if you want sort of a, a, a thesis statement or just a main thought for this section of Scripture, and really for this series, Hope and Hard Times, because we've seen it every single week, it's just the same song in a different verse, if you will. The Bible saying the same thing in a different way. But it's that the road to glory is via the pathway of suffering. I mean, Paul couldn't have said it any more plain, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For us to be human beings that live in this broken world and to have the great spiritual need that we have and to have the great physical needs that we have in in order for us to enter into the glory that we're going to talk about here in just a second. The pathway to that glory by God's design is to take actual steps in this world. Feel actual pain. It's not all going to be painful, but to feel actual heartache and to have actual tears and to have actual disappointment and so on. But look at verse 18. Paul says, for for I consider, now if you underline or highlight in your Bible, get those three words. (laughs) For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, notice what Paul says. He says, I consider. Now this Greek word is translated very well into English. It's, it's not just something that comes to you out of the blue. I mean, he didn't just happen up on this. It's not something he takes flippantly. What Paul's talking about when he says for I consider, he's talking about thought. He's considered it. He's thought about it. He's reasoned about it. And through his thought about it and him using different logic and different things, he's drawn to the conclusion that if I truly am a child of God, if I truly am in union with Jesus Christ, and He truly will never let me go, Then there is glory to come. In fact, that glory pales in comparison to the suffering that we're experiencing. If you remember back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he talked about the weight of glory is preparing for us. Here he says it differently. He says the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of, that is to be revealed. We dealt with that, that, that uh, contrast a couple of weeks ago, more in depth than we were going to today, but again, see the contrast. What we are experiencing pales in comparison to what we will experience. But there's necessity to walk through this time, this life, this present time, as he says, of suffering. I think Paul... Knowing the truths of the gospel, knowing the reality of the suffering that he walked through, and we've dealt with that as well. Just the difficulties that this man faced day after day after day. Many of them because of his boldness for Jesus. Many of them because he's just a a, a human. I don't know how you say that. Dagum.
1: <laughs> we skipped those words. Okay, good. Yeah,
0: he's just a human, a human that's that that is is a, a jar of clay, as he said, that's fragile and and crack, and become leaky, and be crushed, and be pressed, and all of the things that we know happen to Paul, but Paul sets his mind and his thought on the glory that is to come, and and so as Paul heats up this experience of suffering and heartache, he doesn't shift or or, or kind of drift down this path of depression and anxiety, or at least he doesn't let himself go uh, too far with that before he considers what it means to be a child of God and what's to come. I thought of 1 Corinthians two 9. If you can like, like try to follow what Paul's doing here as, as he thinks on and considers the suffering, it would be easy to get wrapped up in darkness and disbelief. But I think Paul has these thoughts in mind often. But as it is written, what no eye has seen. Think of the times in this study that Paul has encouraged us not to fix our eyes on what we can see. He's not doing that. That's what he's doing here. He's looking at what he can't see. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love Him. Friends, consider what's before you. As a daughter and a son of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we have a great glory that awaits. Consider what's before you. Now, Paul... Makes this bold statement in eighteen, and then in normal Paul fashion, and really with, with, with any good writer, um, he, he has um, he shows his logic. He shows why he feels the way that he does, and uses a, a very, I think, a practical argument to illustrate it in two ways. We're gonna, the first way we're going to see him illustrate it, and we'll track his logic, is through creation, and then also we'll see through the sons of God. But let's look at verse nineteen as, as we follow Paul's argument here. He says, "For." The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And so, the first illustration Paul uses is creation itself. And um, this um, this phrase that Paul uses about creation, it, it, it's literally that it says, for, for creation waits with eager longing. You could say creation has, has its neck stuck out, looking, longing, peeking, it's just, just as far as it can reach. Anticipating this particular act. And here in verse 19 at the end he says the revealing of, of the sons of glory. Creation itself, this is the physical creation that we see around us is trying to behold something. It's trying to behold and it's trying to see the revealing or the manifestation of the revelation of the sons of God. Now again, there's so much depth there and there's so much to talk about as it relates to what Paul has already talked about in Romans chapter 8 but I think it's important for us to try to go a little deeper here because Paul expands this thought in this section of how creation is longing through three avenues, past, present, and future. And the first way he does it in verse 20 is he talks about creation past. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Again, if you highlight or underline We're going to come back to this at the end. In hope is the key phrase for verse 20. But he lets us know. Why is creation longing? Why is creation waiting for the revealing or the manifestation of the sons of God? And he he explains his argument by showing what happened to creation in the the past. Like the reason. The reason for it being subjected to futility or frustration. And this is because sin entered the world. So in Genesis chapter 3, there's a lot to go back and look at there and I encourage you to do that. But God had made it perfectly clear to Adam and Eve that if you sin, you will die. Adam and Eve failed. Man's first representative failed. And and if you read back through that story, you might think, geez, it's just one sin. It's not that big of a deal. But but it's, it's not expressing to us the depravity of man as much as it's expressing to us the holiness of God. Because if it was just to focus on man there, we would say, oh, come on, it's just one sin, God. So it's not even really showing it; It's showing us just how infinitely holy and righteous and just the God of the universe is. But once that sin entered the world, God sentenced the world. God. Another way the Bible says it is that God cursed the world. And so the reason for this futility and for this frustration, the reason creation itself is even longing for something, is because God sentenced it to that because of sin. This is not just a natural reaction. This is a sentencing. This is creation where you have to work in the sweat of your brow. This is creation where childbirth involves pain. This is creation where thorns infest the ground. I mean, this is the world that we live in, and the reason that it's subjected to this futility and frustration is because of sin. It's a direct sentencing from an infinitely holy God. You see that God subjected it. Notice what it says here. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him. The Him here Is God? We know that, and and we're going to deal more with this phrase at the end. But we know that the hymn here is God who subjected it, because it was subjected in hope. If this is Satan, it's not subjected in hope. If this is man, it's not subjected in hope. But the infinitely holy God, because He cannot look on sin and sin has to be punished, He subjected creation, and creation wasn't willing. But because of Him, because of His holiness, because of His righteousness, because of His justice, He subjected it. But not only is He infinitely holy and infinitely righteous and infinitely just, He's infinitely merciful. And that's the reason it can be subjected in hope. But we'll deal with that in just a second. So, um, Paul explains this illustration of creation by letting us know the reason for the futility. The second way would be the present way. In verse 22. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so the reason for it is because of sin. The result, which is the present reality, is plain. The creation groans. And Paul uses a Greek word here that's associated with the pains of labor. And so it's as if, I don't know if you've ever experienced a baby being born. Obviously I have not. I've seen it. Oh, have I seen
1: it.
0: It's not something I want to do. It's not something I'm tough enough to do. I admit that. But when you think about it, and you look out and you hear of tsunamis and tornadoes and thunderstorms and floods and droughts and famines and all of these things and that we hear about, what we're seeing from a biblical standpoint is creation groaning as if it's trying to give birth. Why does Paul use this word associated with the pains of labor? I think it's because the pains of labor lead to life. That's different than the pains or the screams that you might hear in the ER because of a car accident. That's different than the pains and the groans that you might hear the oncology wing. Pains of labor are real pains. Somebody said amen out there. Mm -hmm. They hurt. It's real. It's a process. But it's leading to life. Which leads to the third way Paul uses creation to illustrate. Past the reason, sin, present the result, creation groans, but it groans as It's in labor, which leads to the third, the future, the regeneration, verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's subjected to futility. She's trying to give birth. But in the future, it will be released. Jesus it will be set free from its bondage and captivity to the frustration and to the groaning and to the disease and to the famine and to the abuse to the divorce to the cancer uh, to the cancer to the tragedy and so on. one day it's going to be
1: different.
0: Paul uses an extraordinary word in his letters the Greek word for regeneration is called palingenesis. It means coming to life again. If if, if you were confused or wondered what the word, what regeneration means, that might seem like that's a big word, that's a nerdy word, that's whatever. That's a great word. That's a beautiful word. And it's exactly the way Paul expresses what will happen at the consummation of all things and what will happen not only to our physical bodies but to creation itself It will come to life again. It's the same thought that Jesus used in John chapter 3 where he looks at Nicodemus and he's talking about what happens to us when we come to faith, that we are born again of the Spirit of God. Where there is death, where there is nothingness, there's regeneration. But the giver of life himself speaks into the deadness and the nothingness and somehow the deadness and the nothingness obeys. And there's new life. So that's what Paul looks for. It's what he longs for. He's addressing the, the concept of the idea to creation. Now keep that in mind. He, he's not even dealing with the sons and daughters of God yet. We'll talk about that in a second. He's illustrating what will happen to the physical creation, that one day creation will give birth and creation will be restored and the new heavens and the new earth will dawn and it will be drastically different. This isn't going to be on the screen, so... I encourage you to turn in your Bibles if you have them to Isaiah chapter 11. Listen to how Isaiah describes how, how drastically different this new creation will be. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together Listen to this, church. And a little child shall lead them. Just get this imagery. you got the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child leading them. The cow and the bear shall graze. This is starting in verse 6 through verse 9. Verse 7. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. A lot's gotta change. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And the winged child shall put his hand on the adder's den. That's a snake's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Friends, I'm gonna say that again. Because this is what Paul's considering. This is what Paul wants us to think on. This is where Paul wants us to fix our eyes. They shall not hurt or destroy. In all my holy mountain. Futility and frustration and death and groaning will be no more. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The world restored as it was meant to be. In a sense, Eden flourishing again throughout. Every single corner of the globe, a new heavens and a new earth in which there will be no sin, no curse, no darkness. But earthen creatures, that's us, earthen creatures, don't miss the beauty of how earthy it is. I mean, sometimes our thoughts of heaven in the afterlife are just like this perpetual church service where we're sitting on a pew and singing hymns and just worshiping it. If, if that's what God wants, if if that's the way God designed it, then it will be Infinitely glorious, and we'll never grow tired of it. But what the Bible teaches us about the next life is that it's very earthy. It's a new heaven and a new earth, where there's people, and there's an earth, and there's trees, and there's and there's animals. There's this continuity due to the regeneration that came through the person and work. Jesus Christ, the futility will be gone. And so that's the first example Paul uses to express how this current suffering can't be compared to the glory that we will experience. The second way he he, he illustrates this, and he continues this argument, is from the sons of God. Look at verse 23. He says that not only the creation, but we ourselves ourselves. Who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly. Now he's not it's not only creation that's got its neck stuck out, looking and looking and looking and longing. Now the sons and daughters of God have our necks stuck out, looking and waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. He says we are the first fruits. He says the way that we are the first fruits in verse 23 is because we have the Spirit. The first fruits in the Jewish culture were simply um, evidences of more things to come. Now, now there was a the sense that it was the first offering and there was a, you know, beauty in that and, and, and you're taking God the first, the top tenth, the top tithe, and, and that's certainly a part of it. But another major part, and I think what Paul is referencing here in regards to the first fruits, is it, it is a pledge of hope. Man, the first crop was bountiful. Which is evidence of more fruit to come. If you remember last week in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said we were given the Spirit as a guarantee, as a down payment. Right now we're in this experience of of an engagement, if you will. The down payment has been made. The first installment is done. He's saying the same thing here. And, And we have the Spirit that is the guarantee, 2 Corinthians 5... But now he says we have the first fruits of the Spirit, which he's basically saying the exact same thing, it guarantees what is to come. It's the first fruit. It's the pledge of hope. And so Paul means that the indwelling spirit is the first fruit, and it's only God's image bearers that are a part of this creation that have received this. So again, you have this, he's he's painted this picture of us living in this world that's longing for the redemption of of the sons of God but the sons of God are made in the image of God and we have been given the first fruits of the redemption to come and that's why they're waiting for us to be revealed and for us to be redeemed because creation in God's order will come after ours. Creation's redemption will come after ours. Now look at verses 24 and 25. He says, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? Now if if you want to draw a line in your Bible from that rhetorical question at the end of verse 24 to the last part of verse 23, the redemption of our bodies, that's what we're eagerly awaiting. And then he, he has this question for who hopes in what he sees? If you've lived long enough, you don't hope in what you see. If you've lived long enough, you don't hope in the tent that we saw in 2 Corinthians 5 that you live in. What we long for is today that these physical bodies will be redeemed into a glorified state, united with our souls, so that we can experience the glory, the manifest glory of God forever. Worshipping Him and celebrating Him. And so this brings so much hope. I mean, I think of anybody that's had to deal with a lifelong impairment or disability. That this body is... I mean, you maybe would understand more than others this longing for the redemption of your physical body. And the Gospel promises that. That one day, every single wheelchair, crutch, hospital bed, and hearing aid, will melt away. Because there will be no more need because you will receive a redeemed, regenerated physical body. And so 24, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? Verse 25, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now Paul's already said on a number of occasions in Romans 8 that we're already sons of daughters in God. We've already been adopted into the household, into the family of God. And so the way that he changes his wording in this section of Romans 8 sort of creates a tension. And we've talked about this some in our study through Hope in Hard Times, but there's this tension in our lives of um, what's already true but not yet experienced. And so we know these things are true, and we have this hope in the future, but they haven't been realized. And so if you've come to the Father through the Son, then you're a son or a daughter of His. You've been adopted into His family by the gracious work of Jesus Christ. And so that's a reality that's in the heavens. And it's true and it's real. But its full realization is not today. That's why He says, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I don't know if you remember how John puts it in 1 John 3, verse 2. He says this, Beloved, we are God's children. What's that word? Now. now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. you see it? We're already this, but we haven't realized it. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. There's the now. There's the truth. There's the reality. And that's what Paul is saying here. We we already are sons and daughters of God. We have the spirit of sonship dwelling in our hearts as a guarantee. But friends, we're not what we shall be. So I want to direct your attention now in closing to that prepositional phrase that I pointed out to you a couple times already in verse 20. So we've seen Paul illustrate his thoughts and his suffering through creation and through the sons of God. He's, he's plainly laid out what's to come for both. And so what about today? How do we wait patiently? How do we function in this world that is subjected to so much futility? How do we deal with suffering? How do we approach the tough questions. What do we do? How do we do like Paul did in verse 18 and consider these things in a way that brings fruitful thought and hope and not more despair? And I think it's found at the end of verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. If you're a believer, now this is is so important. There is a clear distinction. For those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He is the Lord of their life. They know that He is the only way to the Father, and He is right now the living Savior and at the right hand of the Father. That have trusted Him, you have hope. On the other hand, if you have not placed your faith and hope in the finished work of Jesus, you do not have. This is as good as it's going to get. That's painful. That'll get you killed in some places in this world. But that's the reality. And so what I'm going to speak to in the next few moments is what this means for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because that's who Paul's speaking to. So it's been subjected in hope, meaning the ultimate design of this futility that we're in, The suffering that you and I experience right now is hope. That's the design. So whenever we feel overwhelmed by the futility or whatever it could be that your job is is not going the way you thought it should, your job seems futile, it's frustrating, your marriage isn't going the way that you thought it should go, your kids have, have not gone the way that you desired and prayed for them to go, they're wayward, your body may be giving out on you, and, and, and all of this just seems so futile. It seems so inconsistent with what we would expect to be given from a gracious, loving Father that we know we have. I thought of a quote this week from a pastor that's recently died. His name is Darren Patrick. He's just a few years older than me. Very formative in a lot of lives. But he, he said this often. He said, we are not what we used to be. We are not what we ought to be. And we're not what we will be. We need the hope in our heart. I've ended the quote. We need the hope in our heart that who we are is not what we're becoming. We're here in hope. We've been forgiven. We've been accepted. We've been loved. We've been justified. We've been promised eternal life. But right now, there's much futility. Things break. Things go wrong. Even when you're walking in obedience. I see two main ways our minds go for the children of God whenever we experience suffering. We either are confused by it and go, This doesn't feel right. Why would God allow this to happen to me? You might think of Galatians 3.13. Galatians 3.13 and say, I thought Jesus became the curse for me. Why am I still experiencing this? So there's frustration and there's anger of why would God allow this to happen to me? But then there's also this other side of the coin for the believer's response to suffering is they feel that it's punitive. That you've done this or thought this or said this or or did that. Now God's getting you back. Both of those are completely wrong completely wrong the suffering that we experience as children of God is in hope speaking of Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us this is past tense Christ redeemed us From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Paul is speaking of an act that took place, a condemnation and a punishment, and Jesus himself becoming the curse for us so that we might be this, so that we might be redeemed. And so, friends, for the believer, even though we live in a world that is cursed, even though we still feel the effects of the curse. The curse has been lifted. In the sense, in this sense, your death as a Christian and your suffering as a Christian is no longer punitive, which means God is no longer punishing you. God is no longer in wrath against you. God is no longer opposed to you. It means that because of Jesus and because of what Christ accomplished at Calvary, as Paul describes here in Galatians 3.13, that God is 100% for everyone who is in Christ by faith alone. Not 99.9%. There's not a chance, like a 0.1% chance, that you'll do something bad and He'll get mad at you and then He'll swack you with a disease or swack you with a tragedy or swack you with something. That That's no way to think. In Christ Jesus, we are redeemed and we are justified. And that means today, how Paul started this chapter, there is therefore now, that's a time where today there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're a believer this morning, no matter what you're going through, that is not God's wrath on you. Because God's wrath towards you fell on His Son. So what does this mean? It means that the believer's suffering is always in hope because it's always purifying. Death and suffering become purifying in a pathway to glory. Do you remember the thesis statement at the beginning of this? I don't remember. The road to glory is via the pathway of suffering. It's a doorway to glory. And somehow, and I don't know how it's all going to work, but one day when we enter into glory, we'll have this backdrop. We'll have this contrast of what this life was like and what we experienced with the glory that will be revealed that creation is longing to see. The revealing, the manifestation of the glory of the sons of God. And suffering becomes used by God in fatherly care to discipline and to purify His children. So, friends, your suffering is not because God's mad at you. Yes, it's because of sin, ultimately. Yes, it's because we live in a cursed world. But part of Jesus' work was not just a redemption for the next life, even though that's to come. It's us living in this reality that, as the Bible illustrates many times, that what the enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. And so, because of Jesus, our suffering is redeemed. It's not in vain. I don't care how in vain it seems. I don't care how unnecessary it seems. It's not. And the purpose for our suffering transcends any earthly purpose we could ever devise or try to figure out about our suffering. And that it's purifying us and molding us into the person of Jesus. So that we will be like Him. So we should consider these things. We should think on these things. We should dwell on these things. One way that God has given His people the privilege and the ability to dwell on those things is through His table, through communion. So if you have your elements and you want to participate, this isn't ideal. This isn't the way God designed it. We don't see anywhere biblically that we would be forbidden to partake in the elements together because it's speaking more to a spiritual union through Jesus than anything. But as we always say, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, please refrain from taking communion. The Bible is really clear about judgment that we can heap on ourselves when we mishandle, misappropriate the Lord's table. And so, unbeliever, what we offer you this morning is better than communion. It's Christ himself. And to know that you can look to him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who has done everything possible for sin... uh, For sinful men and women to come into a loving relationship with Him. But it's only through Jesus. And it only comes by faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Not only are you saved, but all of the beautiful truths that we fleshed out this morning come along with that. That we truly have hope. That in the darkest days in this life, because of Christ, you can have hope. And not just a wishy washy hope, I hope this happens. I uh, hope the weather's pretty tomorrow. No, a rock-solid, confident hope because of who Jesus is and what He's done and His faithfulness. So look to Jesus. But for the believer, one of the ways God has given us to consider His work is through the elements. In, in, in Matthew 26, Jesus in the Last Supper the last night with His disciples, um, Jesus Himself took the bread at the table and and Jesus broke it, which is so... Symbolic and um, such a beautiful picture of what was actually about to happen as the Son of God laid His life down for the sheep. It wasn't that they snuck up on Him and they broke His body and God had to figure out how to use that for good. That's not what happened at all. With precision and with intent and and with a heart full of a love for holiness and a heart full of a love for His people, He marched right up to Calvary and He laid His life down. So we think on that as we think on that, before we take this element, we're going to pray. But as we think on that, it's vital for us to come to Jesus in this way with a seriousness about sin and searching our own hearts and knowing that God has granted a wonderful gift of repentance and searching our hearts. And as the Spirit reveals and there's sin there, we don't have to run from it. We can run to it because of His broken body, because of His shed blood a time of repentance, it's a time of remembering, it's a time of worship, and it's a time of proclaiming, let's pray. Jesus, everything that we read today in Romans 8 in regards to creation and what it's been subjected to, Father, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you, you entered into that. And you this span of 33 years did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made yourself nothing and subjected yourself to this frustration and to this futility and even to death. In the most powerful act that's ever been executed, you accomplished salvation through your people, through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of your body. But what you've also given us, God, and I pray we remember this this morning that you have given us a snapshot of what will be true of us that have placed our faith and trust in you. This life is not it. This life is not our home, and You have prepared the way for us to have an eternal home with you. And one of the ways you accomplished that was through your body, which is what this bread represents. spoke of in regards to the cup was it was representative of a new covenant. Blood had been shed for years by God's design. Countless animals bled and bled and bled and bled and bled and bled and bled. bled. But they had to keep bleeding. Over and over and over and over again it was necessary and required because of God's holiness that sacrifice be made until Jesus came. John the Baptist shouted out amongst the crowd, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It was only going to be the blood of that Lamb, capital L, Jesus. As Hebrews says, was to be the once and for all sacrifice for His people forever. And so this blood represents forgiveness. It represents the new covenant. It represents us not only being forgiven, but being from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. God, thank you that you were willing to shed your blood. Thank you that your blood accomplished what ours never could. Thank you that not only was your physical body crushed and it bled out, but that it resurrected solidifying and validating all the promises that we celebrate right here with this cup. That your blood forgives. And that your blood